Good morning, Dr. Dan Guerra. Come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studio. And the date is the 19th of December, 2021. As we uh, evanesce from that single biochemical issue series of lectures, which uh, were quite comprehensive, but nevertheless took over one year to complete, and that was the last series I did on the aging process, we are going to embark on a new um, format, at least as long as I feel like it's a fun thing to do or more importantly, because I have nothing better to do but this. And then I'm going to do single topic lectures, which hopefully I can get done in one or two segments. And my segments on the podcast are 30 minutes. I can increase them to longer than that, but I kind of like the 30-minute format because we don't have any interruptions. We don't have any advertisements. So that's actually a pretty long period of time to deal with the, um, let's just say, complex material that is uh, biochemistry. And I think if I go much longer than that on audio without any visual um, offerings like I do in the video lectures, it might become a little bit complicated. Complex is okay. Complicated is not what I mean to do when I'm Uh, offering you these lectures in authentic biochemistry. So what I thought I would start out with um, is the letter A, because it's the first letter in the alphabet, but also um, it's one way of um, cataloging how these lectures run. I may, of course, diverge from this and go from A to, say, G uh, next time, but I'm planning on doing uh, this at least for some time. So we'll see how far that sometime uh, proceeds. So <laughs> today I'm going to talk about AMP kinase. That's adenosyl monophosphate kinase. That's an enzyme that we have introduced and discussed in great detail in the last three plus years, four years of authentic biochemistry. It's a very important gatekeeper regulatory kinase, which switches from the anabolic to the catabolic mode in almost all cellular processes. And there's an induction process at the level of transcription of AMP kinase. Then there's a lot of post-translational modification of the enzyme itself. And then there's the whole discussion of what the enzyme uses as a substrate, and then all the potentiating physiological sequelae that follow. So that's a lot of material, and certainly we could spend probably an entire, well, I won't say semester, but maybe that could happen. But we could probably spend an entire 10 lectures on AMP kinase. I'm not planning on doing that because I want to make these short, discreet, and episodic. So To lead into AMP kinase today, I'm going to inure you with a little bit of discussion of a storage form of the high phosphoryl group transfer bioenergetic compound we all know as ATP. And so the storage form of that, of course, is creatine. And then that will lead us into AMP kinase. 
So again, Dr. Dan Guerra, and here we go. <clears throat> now, two amino acids, glycine and arginine, uh, will, after the transaminidase reaction, form guanidinoacetate and ornithine. Now, the guanidinoacetate then will pick up a methyl group from acetonosamothionine, and that will form creatine. So basically, you're removing the guanidino group from arginine and transferring it to the nitrogen atom on glycine. Basically, that guanidino group is uh, urea. That's, that's the component structure, uh, only it's a different oxidation state. So now that we understand that, let's talk about creatine just a little bit. Now, I'll remind you that arginine, L-arginine, is one of those amino acids that's sometimes considered essential uh, because it's consumed in metabolic play. So one of the reactions was the one I just mentioned to you, the synthesis of creatine. Creatine is going to then be used to store that high energy phosphoral bond from ATP, right? But let me remind you that arginine is also in the midst of the cytosolic phase of the urea cycle. And arginine actually will be converted to L-ornithine and directly to urea by a hydrolytic reaction. And then once you make L-ornithine, remember it goes into the mitochondrion, and then L-ornithine then reacts with carbamyl phosphate, making L-citrulline. And I think you remember the rest of the pathway. If you don't, it's okay. We'll follow up on it some other time. But those are the two possible fates of L-arginine, that I, besides protein synthesis, obviously. Now, there's one other fate, and what is that? It's nitric oxide synthase, right? Making nitric oxide. So arginine can be consumed from, for nitric oxide, for the urea cycle, and for creatine metabolism. Hence, arginine, L-arginine, is sometimes considered a partially um, essential amino acid as we synthesize it, but we utilize it. So getting it from an outside source is sometimes considered to be um, pushing it into the essentiality um, pathway. All right, so phosphocreatine is basically synthesized by taking creatine and reacting it with ATP. And phosphocreatine then will give up that phosphate, making creatinine and inorganic phosphate. Okay, so now you understand why that, how, where that storage form of that phosphoryl group can be placed in phosphocreatine. So we've gotten that far into it. Let's say we're discussing oxygen utilization. Of course, creatine phosphate is the storage form of ATP, and it is immediately available source of energy. And when there are ATP limiting conditions or ATP availability diminishment, CP or creatine phosphate is converted to ATP by the enzyme creatine kinase. 
And so the enzyme creatine kinase has sometimes been used to, deter- to determine uh, myocardial cell damage because the release of that particular enzyme could denote some kind of issue with the cardiac muscle in terms of maybe an ischemic or myocardial infarction. So that's one of the things that's measured in the blood. Now, let me tell you something about creatine besides its utilization for that gamma phosphoryl group transfer for bioenergetics. Mutations in a protein called the creatine transporter can lead to cerebral creatine deficiency syndrome 1, that's CCDS1. And that's actually an X-linked inborn error of metabolism. And it's characterized by severe creatine deficiency. And that's been associated with intellectual disability, with seizures, and movement and autistic-like behavioral disturbances. This is also associated in some cases with the disease, or the, again, it's the CCDS1, it's the cerebral creatine deficiency syndrome one with intellectual disability, language and speech impairment in association. Now, there isn't a whole lot of work done on the neural and molecular um, underpinnings of that disease. But when you look at the behavioral and pathological alterations associated with obtaining a creatine transporter deficiency, what you find is that you get, this is in a mouse model now, uh, a phenotype that is associated with a decrease in declarative memory. Uh, In fact, the outright impairment of that. And of course, that's associated with, with brain degeneration, right? So it looks like what specifically happens with this creatine transporter um, limitation deficiency um, is a loss in GABAergic synapses. That is also associated with an activation of microglia. So you're getting a pro-inflammatory response in the central nervous system. And with that, you get a reduction in hippocampal neurogenesis and the accumulation of an autofluorescent lipofusin. So it suggests that <laughs> depleting creatine in the central nervous system will be associated with intellectual disability, because that's part of the syndrome. And also what occurs is cognitive decline as the uh, person with the deficiency ages. So it could be that this is associated with this lack of neurogenesis and this inhibition of maintenance of the gabinergic synapses along with the accumulation of lipofusion. Okay. So that's all coming from just creatine. Now, Another thing that's been noted, and this is in sports medicine and sports nutrition, is that some athletes will um, take high levels of creatine, okay? And what happens when they consume this creatine has been, uh, you know, debated for a long time. 
it it's some in some papers it suggested that there's more uh, physical endurance by the ingestion of uh, creatine, and in others there seems to be no effect, and yet in still others there seems to be a localized kidney damage. Okay, so um, I'm not going to go into the details of these. This is basically exercise pathophysiology, uh, but it has been established that the use of of um, creatine in the diet as a supplement has come with mixed results. Now, this, of course, is all motor activity, which utilizes a lot of ATP upon uh, training and upon um, exposure to the, the purpose of exercising of skeletal muscle. So this removes us from the cardiac muscle as well as from the central nervous system, which uses also a tremendous amount of ATP. But you might gather from the point of view I'm trying to express here that supplemental creatine may not be um, a wise um, endeavor to follow if you are a person that's trying to build up muscle. Because whenever you ingest an organic compound that is otherwise synthesized de novo and degraded through various um, allosterically controlled metabolic pathways natively in certain cell lineages, you will tip the ordering and the regulation of the control over that metabolite, hence affecting not just that metabolite, in this case, creatine and creatine phosphate, and then therefore ATP and ADP, but any other limiting factors which may be associated with it. And this is a critical thing that uh, is often overlooked when one thinks of supplementation. Now, this allows me to talk a little bit about now, uh, as an introduction, AMP kinase. Okay. So, as a sensor of cellular bioenergetics, the AMP activated protein kinase, so the AMP kinase, is activated in a response to a host of alterations of cellular bioenergetic demands. And these include nutrient starvation, particularly carbohydrate like glucose, but also limiting oxygen, so hypoxia, and exposure to several toxins, either from pathogens or from abiotic sources, and any other uh, element that might inhibit or alter the electron transport chain in the inner mitochondrial membrane. Now, keep in mind that AMP kinase is itself a serine threonine protein kinase complex, and it consists of multiple subunits. There's a catalytic alpha subunit, both alpha-1 and alpha-2, and then there's a scaffolding beta subunit which can occur as either a beta-1 or beta-2 isoform. And then there's a regulatory gamma sub subunit. And there appears to be in humans at least three uh, varieties of that. So that is gamma-1, 2, and 3. So we know that there is somewhat of a ubiquitous expression at the protein level of AMP kinase alpha-1 beta-1 and gamma-1 subunits. 
And so you would assume then you would make an alpha-1, beta-1, gamma-1 complex. And that would be then the generic reference for all AMP kinase. And you could study then AMP kinase activation or expression or turnover based on looking for that complex. However, there appears to be, as always in biochemistry, a series of unique functions and or subcellular and tissue-specific distribution of all the different distinct AMP kinase complexes that may occur when you have three different subunits, alpha, beta, gamma. So, in fact, it looks like when you start examining inactivating mutations uh, or you do genetic deletion, say, in a mouse model of specific isoforms, you start to obtain tissue-specific pathophysiological consequences. This, therefore, is structure function argument, which is paramount in biochemical analyses. In fact, mutations in the AMP kinase gamma-2 subunit have frequently been observed in cardiomyopathy in humans. And a full deletion of the AMP kinase alpha-2 subunit, but not the alpha-1 or the beta subunits, has been shown to decrease infarct volume and possibly, uh, and this is uh, in both the cardiac system and also in generalized stroke. So this is all coming from papers published on this topic. Now, I'm going to be covering a more recent paper. Those were all from papers published in the last four or five years. A very recent paper on AMP kinase has been published, a kind of review article, and it's in Molecular Cell, and it was published just uh, back in September uh, of this year. And of course, what does it tell us? It tells us that there's multiple ways to store ATP, and we know that we can store it basically in glycolytic intermediates, for example. But fundamentally, uh, it's either ATP, ADP, or AMP, and then the energy charge associated with the relative concentrations of those three adenylates, or it's going to be, of course, uh, creatine. So mitochondria are basically where most of the bioenergetics are occurring, as we know. And we know that they involve that, that's because that's where you get a lot of complete catabolism of carbohydrates and at least fatty acids and amino acids, right? And we've gone through those pathways many, many times. And you know that all of that oxidation leads to the production of NADH and FADH2, and then in associated relativized systems, NADPH2. And you know that all of that reduced form of nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, the NADH, H+, will be reoxidized in that electron transport chain. And then that's associated with the oxidative phosphorylation of ADP to ATP by driving the electrons into molecular oxygen to synthesize water. So you have a chemical bond energy of ATP then that's stored in that phosphate anhydride bond. And we know that ATP can then be mobilized across the mitochondrial membrane by group transporters, translocators. And this results then in a 
distribution of ATP, ADP, and AMP across those membranes, maintaining cellular homeostasis for ATP when it's required in bioenergetics. So you have basically a constant, even in cells that are somewhat anabolic, such as in active protein synthesis or lipogenesis, you still have a rather constant cellular catabolic mode in all cells. And this basically is talking about, again, the macronutrients most common would be in the form of, say, starch and carbohydrate level, or in triacylglycerol, we're talking about fatty acids, and then the removal of those uh, monomeric units, so the breakup of starch into individual glucose units, or the thioesterase mediated removal of the fatty acid and transfer to carnitine and the beta oxidation, which occurs after passing those fatty acids from a cytosol through the two membranes to the carnitine palmitoyl transferase activities back to a coenzyme A thioester. So the beta oxidation will occur and NADH and FADH2 will be synthesized in the mitosol and then ultimately again in the whole oxidation phase of the ETC. So we know that there is elevated ATP to ADP ratios when you have catabolic sequencing. And that allows the adenine nucleotide pool then to serve as a bioenergetic reservoir. And that means you have to maintain some specific molar concentration of ATP. And this is because you're going to have an adaptive turnover that is bioenergetically sequenced to be able to maintain that adenine nucleotide pool for the bioenergetics and the resynthesis of the ATP, either via oxidative phosphorylation or, for example, from phosphocreatine, as we um, got into this whole discussion, right? And that's going to require then this AMP-activated protein kinase because it is going to act as a molecular sensor for that catabolic cascade of ATP going to ADP and then thence AMP. And because the AMP kinase is going to be recognizing, measuring, sensing, and then responding to the relative concentrations of those three adenylates. And the most important would be the one with the removal of the two first phosphoryl groups on ATP, and that would be the remainder AMP, hence AMP kinase is the key feature of that enzymatic activity. It's activated by AMP. And it's the primary sensor in cells for cellular energy, at least through the nucleotide lineage. And we see it in all eukaryotic organisms. Basically, AMP kinase then itself is, a again, a rheostatic sensor for ATP, ADP, and AMP levels, or, or net energy charge any decreases in that bioenergetic pool okay, will involve direct interactions of those three adenylates. And that means you're going to get, at some point, high enough levels of AMP to activate the AMP kinase. Then the AMP kinase, what it does is turn right around and coordinate a regulation of a network of a whole series of downstream processes 
including the phosphorylation cascades that you would think a kinase would do, right? And so these are going to be bioenergetically co-adaptive to replenish the ATP levels at some sufficiency to be able to drive cellular homeostasis. So as it turns out, this AMP kinase is no small player in bioenergetics. In fact, it's very significant overall in metabolic flux, right? And that means a caloric restriction and exercise, which of course are environmental aspects of the dialectical event ontology of bioenergetics will be highly regarded and important architectonic in all cells, right? Now I want to remind you about mTORs. Now, mTOR, which is the mammalian target of a drug called rapamycin, has been heavily studied. Now, mTOR, you know, is an anabolic complex. You make an mTOR, mTOR complex one and mTOR complex two, and they interact with one another in very discrete ways. And I talked about them in terms of nascent, very specific and precise protein synthesis during an anabolic cascade, such as setting up for cell cycle to get into the S phase for nucleotide biosynthesis, DNA replication, and then finally mitosis, right? The cell plates mitosis following that sequence of events. So you know where mTOR fits in. Now that, now that puts it basically as a contrarian to the AMP kinase motif, right? So you know that when the mTOR and the various enzymes that serve the mTOR pathway, which are also kinases, and you know we talked a lot about these kinases in the past. One in particular comes to mind is ATK, right? Is going to work then perhaps completely contrarian in most cellular systems when you deplete or highly regenerate the uh, ATP pools or most likely in a seesaw effect of slight variations in the mTOR pathway in association with slight alterations in the AMP kinase pathway cascade systems, all the way at the level of controlling gene expression. Because the AMP kinase is involved as a transcriptional controller of gene expression, as you might guess. And because it's gonna be um, sensing low levels of ATP, what it will then induce at the transcriptional level obviously would be a, um, a series of biochemical pathways which will replenish the level of ATP, right? So rather than being anabolic and therefore associated with the production of macromolecules, AMP kinase is going to be involved in the removal of macromolecules like triacylglycerol, polypeptides, complex carbohydrates, and turning all of that carbon into, through the TCA cycle for, for, for glucose and for amino acids, and via the beta-oxidation pathway for fatty acids, into respirable carbon, generating carbon dioxide, ultimately through the TCA cycle, as we know, or uh, keto, ketogenesis, because we know the carbon that comes off those fatty acids can be ketogenic, ultimately, of course, completely oxidizes CO2. So now mTOR, remember its name, it's about this drug called rapamycin. 
And what was discovered that rapamycin was being used in various animal models for several years, determining its role in regulating mTOR, okay, because it's going to inhibit mTOR, because it's the molecular target of, of this uh, complex. It, it basically, it's, it's a cascade system for anabolism. And what was found was that rapamycin and C. elegans, for example, and in yeast, look like it promoted an increase in what's known as health span. Now, that's different from longevity. Don't worry, I'm not going to fall back in. I told you we have an est away from aging. But health span is different. That means a healthy homeostasis, which, of course, is longitudinally progressive in a temporal sequence. Notice how I chose my words carefully there. Um, but not necessarily promoting sensus strictu, aging itself. Okay, so health span, not lifespan. And in, in fact, treating with rapamycin at certain concentrations seem to have positive effects on what normally declines with that temporal sequence, such as cardiac muscle integrity and the central nervous system. So it looks like besides that, rapamycin may also maintain a more active, more naive-based and juvenile-sequenced immune system. So you can see where this is now getting completely turned into a homeostatic control, not just of um, ATP levels and bioenergetics, but overall cellular metabolic homeostasis. And we're just getting started, right? So a little bit more about mTOR. I'm not, again, this isn't a lecture about mTOR, so I don't want to spend too much time. mTOR, of course, is also a serine threonine protein.